Genesis chapter 6. So much has changed in such a short amount of time. It was only five chapters ago that we began in the beginning, before there was anything, when there was just God. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us of the creation of all things that God deemed very good. Chapter 3 tells us about that which is evil, the sin of Adam. Chapter 4 tells us about the murder of Abel. And then chapter 5 tells us about the lineage of Adam through Seth, leading us up to chapter 6. The lineage that is given beginning with Adam and ending with Noah, tells us of the men who lived for long periods of time, men who up to Lamech, the father of Noah, knew Adam. And of Noah, his father Lamech prophesied. He said of Noah, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Genesis 5.29 And then... Lamech had other sons and daughters. Saints, my hope in life is rooted and grounded in Christ. And I desire to know him, to be enthralled by him and him alone. And this is my hope for you as well. It's the singular thing that I desire you to grow in. But what I've found within myself all too often is that I'm like a fish. That I'm easily distracted by shiny things. My attention span really is limited. I have what could be classified as spiritual ADD. In reality, what I have is biblically classified as S-I-N. And one of the ways that it manifests itself is getting hung up by, enthralled with things of the Bible that are not important. And one of the things that's been revealed to me concerning me in studying through Genesis is that I too easily have been distracted from the true meaning of the Scripture by other things found within it. Case in point. There was a time in my life that I was so enthralled by that lineage of chapter 5. But not for the reason that it's given to us. I was enthralled by that lineage because men had taken one of the multiple meanings of those names that are listed there, and they had strung them together, and then we are told that this is the meaning of why those names have been given to us. This is spiritual ADD. And today's verses are prime real estate for that kind of spiritual ADD. The first four verses of our text from today contain things that are hard to imagine. But we need to understand that verses 1 through 4 rightly belong with chapter 5, with that lineage given to us of Adam, the genealogy that contains Enoch and that ends with Noah, the genealogy that is supposed to be read in light of and even over the genealogy of Cain given to us in chapter 4. 
But because of the chapter breaks and the verse numbers, the first four verses are usually read as a single standalone thought with each one of those verses being built on the other. And none of them pointing back to anything else, any other chapters that have ever come before it. And because of this, these verses have become legendary in their supposed meaning and intent. So let's look at those first four verses and deal with those hard-to-imagine topics and hopefully see how they bring us to the point of this chapter. Because there is a point in this chapter. See how they tie in with the meaning given in the genealogy of Adam through Seth. And see how they tie in with the meaning and the theme of the Bible. Verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of who were of old, the men of renown. Verses 1 and 2 are the fodder for the pulp fiction of angel worship. There are some that hold that these verses are stating that angels and humans have sexual, had sexual relations, and that they produced the Nephilim, the giants, the mighty men of old, as, as, and renowned, as we're told in verse 4. And the reason that they hold to this line of thinking is that there's only four instances in the all of New Testament that this phrase, sons of God, is used. And the other three, every time that it's used outside of this, the other three always is referring to angels. Such as in Job chapter 1, verse 6, which tells us there, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Those men hold that as truth, because it is truth. In every other instance that that phrase, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament, it is angels that are being referred to. But then those highly educated, most often, very godly men, to solidify that what is being said here is angels. They grab verses such as Jude chapter 1, verse 6, which tells us, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They're right about that phrase, the first phrase and the clear intended meaning behind it, that in every all, all those other three times that it's being used as talking about angels. But that Jude verse, that verse can only be surmised to be referring to the Genesis section of Scripture. And then those that hold to that meaning, their next they're going to do is they grab 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as a proof text as well. 
Grab your Bibles with me and turn there. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter 2. Beginning in verse 4. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's where he begins there. And it seems like what Peter's referring to seems to correspond with those Jude verses, especially since the very next thing that Peter says in verse 5 is, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, well, he's talking about the same time period. Doesn't that mean that this must mean them? I mean, isn't this proof enough that this must be the meaning of those verses in Genesis 6? Well, to understand those Second Peter verses, we need to read them in context with the rest of the sentence that they are found in. See, verses 4 through 10, that's just one sentence. There's no periods there. Here's verses 4 through 10 of 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep under keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of, of defiling passion and despise authority. So what is the point of this sentence? Because again, it's just one sentence. What's the point of that sentence? The point is to prove that God has proven that he knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And verse 10 of 2 Peter 2 is very pertinent to, to our section of scripture from today, to Genesis chapter 6. There, verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So let me ask you, when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, who suffered in that destruction? Are there any fallen angels spoken of there? How about the flood narrative? Any fallen angels spoken of dying there? In the rest of chapter 2, I'm sorry, of Second Peter 2, deals with those that despise authority. And angels are only mentioned one other time in the letter of Second Peter. And that's found in verse 7, where he, Peter, compares those that are spoken of as indulging in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. He compares those and contrasts them with angels. He said, bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. Whereas angels, there's the comparison, there were those that were, um, that were bold and willful. 
And then he says, whereas angels, though greater in mighty and power, don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And then in verse 12 through uh, verse 22, Peter goes on to talk about those that should have obeyed God, who claimed to have been of God, but don't. Not speaking about angels, but about men. We need to get our creation facts in order. Angels are not physical created beings. They're spiritual created beings, Hebrews 1.14. And angels can manifest themselves as humans, such as when Gabriel does. And they can possess the unregenerate, such as what demonstrated to us in the demoniac. And we are told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. But angels and humans are still fundamentally different. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said of angels when speaking of the glorified bodies of men, he said, you are wrong because you neither know scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And what Jesus was doing there, he was correcting men whose theology and understanding of God was wrong. These men held that there was no resurrection of the dead, that this life is a once and done thing. Oh, there might be a heaven, they thought, but if you get there, you're not a human being. You're a spiritual being. This is what they thought. Once again, we need to make sure that you have clear in your mind what Jesus said there. He didn't say that we would, in our resurrected bodies, no longer be physically created beings. That we are resurrected into spiritual beings, as the angels are. What he said there is that in the resurrection, that we will not marry or be given in marriage. And in this way, we will be like the angels in heaven. Angels and humans are both created beings by the same God, created for the same reason, to glorify God. And we are created fundamentally different, though. Angels are spirit and are not created in the image of God. Adam was superior to Lucifer. Lucifer, after becoming Satan, couldn't wrestle the title deed of the world from the hand of Adam. It had to be given to him, which is what Adam did when he, in, when, what he did with the created realm when he sinned. And all of creation proves that everything with the creation of God that is fundamentally created different cannot reproduce with each other. Trees and dogs, they don't reproduce. Fish and flowers, they can't reproduce. Men and horses, they don't reproduce. None of these things can reproduce with each other. And even if a demon possessed a person and then caused them to have relations with another person, the person that would be born of that union would still be human, still created in the image of God. 
even though they are born of the seed of the serpent. The point that Jesus was making to those that had a fundamentally bad understanding of God when he spoke to the Sadducees ties in with why we need to get the meaning of today's chapter right. You see, there's contrasts given in the first two verses of our chapter today, which are very helpful in understanding the meaning of these verses. We read in verse 1 that it was man who was multiplying on the face of the land, and daughters were born to men. I, I hope you guys know that men don't have babies, <laughs> despite what Google will tell you. What is being given to us here is the link back to chapters 1 through 3 concerning mankind as he is spoken of by God there. After the sin of Adam, God gives us the contrast that we humans still see all around us. He curses the serpent for the deception of the woman. And in that curse, he makes a separation between humans. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Chapter um, 3, verse 15. Can we understand what God was saying there? What distinction he was making? Because I've yet to run across a person who holds it. What God was saying in that curse is that the spiritual babies of the fallen angels are at war with humans. That this was the curse that God put on that serpent. Every person that I've ever come across who says that they are a Christian views the curse as the reality of humanity as told to us in the rest of the Bible. That until we are regenerated by God, that we are a son of Satan, a seed of the serpent and not of the woman. And then beginning in verse, um, the verses of chapter 4, Genesis, we are given the proof text, the human proof text of the distinction that God has made concerning the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Distinctions that are made with humans, Cain and Abel. Not a demon and Abel. Not a fallen angel and Abel. Cain and Abel. And then the rest of chapter 4 is the genealogy of the offspring of the serpent through the line of Cain. But chapter 4 ends with the birth of Seth, the corporate worship of God. And then we move into chapter 5, the line of Adam through Seth and Noah. And then the first four verses from today are not to be intended to be um, standalone verses. They're not even given us to us to be read as cause and effect verses. They are meant to be read in the storyline that has been given to us in the previous chapters and as a time stamp of when all this occurred. And as we move into verse 2 from chapter 6, we are, um, in verse 2 of chapter 6, we are given a contrast. Sons of daughters, or sons of God, daughters of man. And this contrast has given us to cause us to think back to what has occurred in the previous chapters, the distinctions that happened within humanity in chapter 3. In verse 2, we read that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And this language was used earlier. It takes us back to that encounter between Eve and the serpent. Verse 6 of chapter 3, So when the woman saw 
that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight in the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And here, when the sons of God saw that which was a delight to them, that which was attracted to them, they took wives as they chose. Saints, there are biblical standards that never change, such as the fact that the Lord will not lose any that are his, as told to us in John 6.39. And at the same time, alongside of this truth, saints should never yoke themselves with the unregenerate, as told to us in 2 Corinthians 6.14. There, it very clearly says, do not be unequally yoked with believers. Again, the reasons given in the verses that follow that imperative, not to be unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians, line up with and explain our verses from today. There it tells us, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be your father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do we all not, when we read the story of the account of Samson, do we not wonder at his parents? Why they allowed him to lust after Gentile women, allowed him to be unequally yoked? And are we not warned in the book of Proverbs concerning the danger of being unequally yoked? And do we not teach our children to not be enticed by the sensual appearance of the unrighteous, but to look for godliness in a spouse? Angels and humans are fundamentally different. And fallen angels are not the reason for the events that follow verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. The theme that has been developed, that is the theme of the Bible, must be brought to bear here if we are to understand rightly what is being told to us. What is that theme that's being pointed out over and again, beginning in chapter 3, concerning man? Man has left their natural place, and we defiled ourselves. The men from the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, began to defile themselves by disobeying God and going after that which pleased their eyes. And as proof of this, I present to you the man Noah. How many people were on the ark of God when he preserved that godly line of the woman? Eight. Noah? his three sons and their wives. What happened to the other children of his father, Lamech? Remember? We're told that after he fathered Noah, he had other sons and daughters. What happened to them in the flood? 
What about the rest of the family of Noah? His uncles and his aunties and his cousins. There were also of this godly line that is given to us in chapter 5 of Genesis. They are those that died in the flood because they defiled themselves. And verse 3 is given to us as further proof that it was the godly line of Seth that had disobeyed God and had unequally yoked themselves, therefore perverting the goodness and the purity of God in his church. There the Lord said, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now there's three times in chapter 6 that God speaks. In this verse, verse 7, and in verse 13. And all three times that God speaks, he does so from sovereignty. And we'll deal with the first two times that he speaks in our sermon from today. And Christians have no issue with thinking that when God said, let there be light, and there was light, that light, that was his preordained plan, as told to us in Genesis 1-3. But if you suggest that God had a preordained plan to destroy well, that has to be something different. I mean, can we all agree, though, that there was no outside cause for Genesis 1-3 when God said, let there be light? He created light because he wanted to create light and because creating it would bring him the most glory. And the light that he created there, that was exactly as he desired it to be. But somewhere along the line, at least in our thinking, his sovereignty, it just got a little bit less sovereign. Because somewhere along the line, he lost control in heaven. He, he, he faced a rebellion that he had to overthrow. And like most civil unrest, it quickly spread to the earth. And those that were created in his image, they finally got wise to his schemes and they rose up against him. And now, well, now... The rebel forces have backed him into a corner. He must be sitting there wringing his hands, pacing back and forth, wondering, how did it go so wrong so quickly? But they forced my hand. I'm going to have to act. So he shortens the time span for men. They're no longer going to live to be 900 years. But the problem with that thinking is we're faced with the issue of reality. Because all you have to do is read a bit further past the destruction of mankind to see that men did live to be over 120 years. In fact, men can still live to be over 120 years. The, older per the oldest person in the modern history lived to be 122 years old, and she died in 1997. So God isn't speaking of human longevity here in verse 3. He is telling of the time of the destruction that he has preordained. It was at the time of the days of Noah that he started that big countdown clock on the wall. Oh, he had hung that clock from before the foundation of the world. It had been a constant that men in their arrogance ignored, thinking that God could not, did not have control over my life. And he just looks at that clock and he says, begin. 
And it was after the start of that big clock on the wall that we read, that we come to verse 4. And now our fascination with angels, well now, it can move on to the fascination with giants. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So who were these men of renown, the mighty men of old? And once again, I want to point out to you that we are now once again focusing on men, giants or not, and not the God that is still sovereign over those giants, half angels or not. So who were these Nephilim? Well, if you hold it to the product of that union between the humans and angels, you got an issue because you got to deal with Numbers 13.33. There, after the exodus from Egypt, and that happens after the flood, before the conquest of Canaan, the spies are sent in to assess just how good the land is that they're going to be given. And they come back and they tell the people there, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem like grasshoppers to uh, ourselves, and so we seem to them, verse 33. And since this is the case, as described to us in Numbers 13, that would have to mean that Noah had to have been one of those men that came from that union between humans and demons, since the Nephilim were still around generations after he, Noah, was dust. Again, I'm going to point out how quickly we humans get sidetracked from the main theme of this story. How quickly we can take our eyes from the Lord and focus our attention on the periphery. We have very quickly read verse 3, and then we pigeonholed it. We backburnered it because there's mysteries here that we might be missing out on if we don't figure them out. Instead of thinking on and dealing with a God who has just set the doomsday clock in motion, we'd rather think on, daydream about the possibility of giants, half-human beings roaming the earth. But look at our verses 5 through 7 of our text today. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's important to note that we have not evolved past verse it's still truth and it hasn't changed we need to get this right in our minds God did not look down from heaven and see half humans half angels were wicked that their intentions were of their hearts were always evil he God in verse 5 is talking about us only us and verse 5 is the reality of humanity. This is the reality of all humans. Little old ladies and three-year-old children, both 
are monsters of iniquity outside of Christ. Verse 5 is given us as an insight into the reason of verse 3. And at the same time, we are meant to have our minds engaged and be drawn back to another time that we are told that God saw his creation. Back in chapter 1, we're told in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 31, that God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the, day, the sixth day. And here we are told that God saw once again, after the sin of Adam, but what we are told, to, what, are we are, or what are we supposed to make of those verses 5 through 7, though? Because especially in light of Job 35, which I quoted to you last week, Job 35, verses 6 through 8, we're told of a truth there. There it says, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him, meaning God? And if you transgress, your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. In other words, we don't affect God. But do not these verses from today, don't they prove that God was surprised by what had become of man? What we did to ourselves and the rest of his creation, don't they contradict those verses from Job? This is why we must get the Bible, grab the Bible, and use the Bible to explain the Bible. So first, a couple guardrails in our thinking concerning God. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God does not change his mind. Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. 1 John 3, 20, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Acts 15, 18, Known to God from eternity are all his works. Isaiah 46, 10, Declare God, speaking of God, He declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient time things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And then in 1 Samuel 15, 29, we are told something more about this God who knows all things, who declares all things, and who will accomplish all of his good pleasure. There, we're told, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God doesn't regret because he knows all things. So with these truths fresh in our mind, we need to then consider what it is that God is saying to us in verses 5 through 7 of Genesis 6. John Calvin is very helpful in grasping what is being said there. In his commentary of this, he said this, Because it could not otherwise be known how great is God's hatred and detest of sin, therefore God accommodates himself to our capacity, like a father stooping down to list to his infant child. God clothes himself in our affections in order to more effectively pierce our hearts with the gravity of sin. What God is doing in verses 5 through 7, he's using anthropomorphic terms 
to allow us to know how holy he is and how much he hates sin. This is why I keep reminding you that we need to get Genesis 1-1 right. It's essential in getting it right if we're going to get the rest of Scripture right. And if you're ever going to understand yourself, you have to get Genesis 1-1 right. Especially in light of that salvation that's been given to you. Not offered, but given. So what was it that Calvin said what the purpose of God using anthropomorphic language was and revealing to us what he thinks about sin? And the thing that we're supposed to think about, the thing that we're supposed to contemplate over when we read verses 5 through 7, if God thinks that way about sin, what do we think about sin? How do we view sin in light of this? Do we even understand what sin is? Do we even understand how it affects all of creation? How unrepentant sin in this body infects this body? How our sin not only pollutes ourselves, but also all of creation to the point that God is going to destroy it all because of our sin. What we're supposed to be asking ourselves when we read verse 5 through 7 is, do you hate your sin? Do you even dislike your sin? Really? I mean, really? See, because I know these people, they hate mushrooms. Oh, they make this claim. They will pronounce it to everybody. I hate mushrooms. And they follow it up by staying away from mushrooms. All things mushrooms. Oh, they don't toy with mushrooms. They don't tell you that I hate mushrooms. But then secretly, behind closed doors, they're eating stuffed mushrooms when no one is looking. They're not picking up the phone and calling a 900 number to hear mushroom talk. They are fanatical about being anti-mushroom. And we are supposed to hate sin just like God does. Well, how does this work out practically in our lives? Well, if you know that you have an issue with persistent viewing of porn, destroy your TV. Destroy your computer. Switch to a flip phone. Think of it as a mushroom for those that hate mushrooms. If you, have an, if you have an issue with lying or cheating or stealing, hate those sins the same way that that person who's in rehab hates their addiction. You stop going to those places where those things are prevalent. You stop hanging around with those that will approve of those actions. You start digging into the word and getting around brothers and sisters that will hold you accountable. But most importantly... We need to live like those that hate mushrooms. Not dwelling on the hatred of mushrooms, but living in the pure enjoyment and splendor of all things that are not mushrooms. We are to live towards God. Think on him. Dwell 
on and in his word. This is how we learn to hate our sin. But there's one thing that you and I need to know. We can't do it. We can't kill our sin. We can't even hate our sin. Which is why verse 8 follows these verses. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you're sitting there asking yourself, why in the world, verse 8 following verse 7, help in understanding the nature of sin? Once again, God created or God had a reason for creation. And understanding and being able to articulate that reason is tied into Genesis 1.1. Tied into dealing with the, that God has with all of his creation, especially with man. See, there's a storyline being developed. A godly narrative that we're supposed to be tracking with, beginning with the events of the creation account. And continue to develop all through, throughout this historical narrative of this Bible. The one that is given to us in those Second Peter verses that I read to you a bit ago, where he says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment. But you're still asking yourself, how does verse 8 help us with that? What does finding favor in the, in the eyes of God mean? I mean, what did Noah do to obtain that? How, how are we supposed to emulate him? Uh, how, how do we get to, be, to get to know the secrets of becoming another Noah? Noah. In verse 9, though, is very helpful in understanding this. Verse 9 tells us, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In verse 9, we are given the first instance of that word righteous being used in the Bible. And because of this, if we did desire to understand what God means by that word righteous, we have to use his definition of it, the one that's given to us here. So what does he mean that Noah was righteous? Well, we're told in chapter 7, verse 1 about Noah. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And you're thinking, man, that Noah, he must have been one godly man. Because Enoch, he may have walked with God and then he was taken. But he was never said to be righteous. Noah is called righteous. And in Isaiah 64, 4, we're told of God, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So if that's Noah, it's no wonder that he found favor in the sight of God. That Noah must have been some kind of guy. But once again, we must keep our thinking between the guardrails of Scripture. Because just two verses later in Isaiah 64, the truth of Noah and every human since Adam is told to us. Isaiah 64, 6. Anybody know that verse? We've all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So how do we reconcile these two things? How can Noah's righteousness be as filthy rags, but at the same time, he's called righteous? Was he the exception? 
Does the all of Isaiah 64, 6 mean only some? That there are some that are righteous and that can attain to the righteousness of God? That all that means there is concerning the ones concerning about our righteousness being filthy rags compared to God, that only applies to some people. But it applies to all. But at least it applies to everyone that that last part of that verse intends it to. Those that are described as fading away. Those that die. Do you understand that righteousness is moral perfection? Not moral good. Not even moral better than average. It's moral perfection. All the time. Every second of every day. Even when someone pulls out in front of you. Even then. You must be perfect. And no one can do it. And the reason that we cannot is because righteousness, while it is something that we are told to attain to and work towards, is not within us. It's the same as the command that was given to Cain in chapter 4 when God told him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, um, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God told Cain the truth there. You must master that which is your master. You must do what you cannot. And this is truth. And you must be righteous. And we are not. We cannot be. It's not within us to be righteous. Except some are. Noah was. So how can this be? Well, in the book of Romans, we're told of the good news called the gospel. And there Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. The righteousness of God is revealed in the good news. And it's revealed from faith for faith. But even if it's revealed, how is that good news to those that can't attain or achieve it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, once again we're taken full circle back to the redemption plan of God that was set in motion before the foundation of the world. And this, dear saints, is how Noah and every saint, including you, if you are a saint, how you and they are righteous. And if you have been saved, if you have been redeemed, moved from the seed of the serpent to the seed of the woman, if you have been adopted by God, All these have happened in you if you put your trust in Jesus as the Christ. And if you've done that, then the Bible tells us you're a new creation and you are righteous. But not in your good deeds, not in your perfect humility, not in your kindness towards old people or animals, 
only in Christ. And when you hear this truth, that we are righteous, God sees us as righteous. When you hear that truth, Noah was found righteous. He found favor in the eyes of God. When you hear that truth, how can you wonder at angels or giants? How do either of those fit into the salvation plan that was put in place before the command for there ever to be light? Verses 1 through 9 point to the gospel. They make the truth of our righteousness in Christ shine against the filthiness of our sin. This is what the good news that Paul was not ashamed of is. Listen to this good news. Romans 3, 23-26, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this includes every single human. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness that the, at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen to the reality of who you are if you're in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Noah's righteousness is the same as yours. It's found in. It's rooted in. It's flowing from Christ. This is what we are to wonder at in this chapter. This is what we are to marvel at in all of the Bible, in all of our life. The wonder, the majesty, the goodness of a God who would look down from heaven at my life, at your life, and see it as completely polluted, unrighteous. And then he would save us. How do we get so distracted to wonder at giants. Let's pray.